This morning we come to part five in our series on the marks of a healthy church member. And so we are taking some time over the summer to look at what are the marks, what are the ingredients of those who contribute healthily to the church. Our assumption in this series, as we've said a number of times, is that healthy churches are comprised of healthy members. And that if we want to be a healthy place, then we've got to be uh, characterized by people who are healthy church members. And so we're looking at those marks. We've seen four of them already. First, number one, we said that a healthy church member has a deep love for the bride of Christ. They love the church. And despite all of its warts and all the potential problems that happen in a church, true believers and true church members really love the bride of Christ. In fact, to love Christ is to love His church. Number two, we said, secondly, that a healthy church member has an insatiable hunger for the Word of God. They want biblical preaching. They don't want sermonettes for Christianettes. They want truth. They want biblical doctrine. They want expository preaching. They want the Word unpacked for them every Sunday morning. They want doctrines explained. They want the meat of the Word. They want to be fed and equipped and taught. Number three, we said that a healthy church member demonstrates a strong commitment to the membership of the church. And by that, we mean that they're not just attenders, they're not just spectators, that healthy church members see the value of the church. In fact, they understand that a strong commitment to the local church in membership is precisely one of the ways that God has designed for us to grow spiritually and be sanctified. And so healthy church members demonstrate a strong commitment to the membership of the body, or we could say that they, they are church members in the formal sense. Last week, we looked at number four. We said that healthy church members possess a humble respect for the leaders of the church, that within a healthy church, there is a culture of respect, a culture that, that honors leaders, a culture that values the leaders, the elders, the, the, the shepherds of the church, and they appreciate those elders, and they uh, follow those leaders, and they submit to them, and they pray for them. And so, a healthy church is comprised of people who then honor the leaders that God has entrusted to care for for that body. Today we want to come to mark number five. Mark number five of a healthy church member is that they purposely preserve the unity of Christ. They purposely preserve the unity of Christ or the unity of the church. And so what we're getting at in this topic today is that healthy church members understand that they have to primarily be a unifying influence in the life of the church. Not a divisive influence, but a unifying influence. And they understand that when they became a Christian, that God not only puts them in the church, he, he puts them in that church to be a unifying force. And they understand that unity is crucial to the health of the church. In fact, it's not just crucial, it's critical that a unified church is a healthy church. And so those who are healthy church members want to be a source of unity in that church, not a source of division. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how, bless, how blessant, pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's good to be unified. There's blessing, there's protection in, in spiritual unity. And so God expects us to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. God expects us to preserve that unity, which is ours, through our relationship with Christ. And so we're all imperfect people. And God has put us in, a, in an organism known as the church. And it doesn't mean that we automatically 
work all things out naturally well. It doesn't mean that just because we're Christians in a church, everything is suddenly good in our relationships and we naturally just get along with people. That's not what being a Christian means. Being a Christian means that we work through those things. Because we have the Spirit of God and we have Christ in us, that, that we work through those. We respond in love to one another. We, we seek and grant forgiveness. We, we seek reconciliation. We promote the unity of the church in how we deal with one another. The reason this is important and the reason you need to understand this is because Satan's great aim for the church is to divide it. This is how Satan works. His MO is to go after the leadership, and if he can't get the leadership to crack and to fall and to to disqualify themselves, then Satan goes to the church, to the people, and he will begin to sow seeds of discord amongst the people to try and fracture that fellowship in order to render that church ineffective for the gospel. That's his strategy. It is to destroy the witness to the unifying love of Christ. And Satan hates God, and therefore, by implication, Satan hates the people of God who make up the church of God. And so he's going to go after the church, and he's going to sow seeds of distress and discord and dissension and divisiveness. He wants to make believers bitter. He wants to make them jealous. He wants to get them to disagree with one another. And he wants to do what Galatians 5.15 says. He wants to get them to bite and devour one another. That's what Satan's after. And that's what Satan wants for Maranatha Bible Church. If you want to know what the enemy is doing, he is seeking to divide you. He's seeking to, to sow seeds that will put you at odds with people sitting next to you to make this church divided so that we're no longer effective for advancing the gospel and we become a spiritually weak church. That's what Satan wants for this church. So we need to say that healthy church members understand that and then are willing to fight against that and to preserve the unity of the church. You've heard over many, many years, many cases of churches that have split and churches that are filled with factions. I came across an article recently, church splits down the middle over issues regarding piano bench. This is a spoof. It's not real, but here, here's, here's how it goes. hundred years of Christian fellowship, spiritual love, godly unity, and community growth ended last Tuesday in a fit of congregational discord not to be rivaled in this century. Holy Creek Baptist was severed from the once stalwart cord of unity that bound them together, and the source of dissension in this once holy house of God is a piano bench, which still sits behind the 1923 Steinberg to the left of the pulpit. Landover Baptist members who have friends or relatives at Holy Creek Baptist say that the old bench was something of a source of hostility. That congregation was ready to break for the last 10 years. It's just a shame that it had to be over a piano bench. At present, Holy Creek Congregation will be having four services on Sunday, each faction with its own separate service for its own separate pastor. Since the head pastor is not speaking to the associate pastor, each will have their own service, which will be attended by faction members. We are told that the services are far enough apart that neither group will come into contact with one another, and an outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between the services so as to please both sides and avoid any further conflict that could result in violence." Well, fortunately, that's not true, but it's not too far from the truth, and we've all been a part of churches where that kind of thing happens, 
This is how Satan works. He wants to divide us. He wants us to hate each other. He wants us to fight against each other. He wants to sow seeds of dissension within our midst. And so we need to understand that. These kind of things demoralize a church. These kind of things render a church ineffective. And if you've been a part of a family where there's been discord, you know what that's like. And if you've been a part of a church where there's discord, you know what that's like. It's devastating. Some of you have been through church splits before, and it's terrible. I was part of a church once that came out of a split. I wasn't there for the split, but it came out of that, and there were still people there who had relatives at the previous church, and there were still hard feelings, and there were still broken relationships, and there, there were still just, just, just hard feelings towards one another about how this whole thing happened. And, and that's what happens when there's disunity within the church. I'm not dealing with this topic this morning because I'm aware of any imminent threat at Maranatha. The elders are firmly united. As far as I understand, our church is firmly united. If any of you is launching a faction, just let us know that. That'd be good to know. Uh, but we're not aware of anything like that. Uh, so I'm not preaching on this because I'm aware of any significant issue. But it doesn't mean that we're immune to division. It doesn't mean that because it's not happening that, we're not, that, that we're, we're, we're not immune from it because the reality is God has put us together into a church and yet all of us have tendencies towards selfishness and preferences and pride which can then lead us to become divided over various things. And so I think it's important that in a series on healthy church members that we talk about the potential for conflict that exists simply by being together into one body. So we want to be aware of that. And we want to see what God's Word says about this issue so that we can be those who are healthy church members who diligently preserve the unity of the church. I want to give you three reasons this morning why this is important. Three reasons why healthy church members diligently preserve the unity of the church. We're going to look at various passages this morning, and as we go through this, I want you to think about, are, are, you a, are you a source of unification within the church, or are you a source of strife? Are you a source of, of being an, a unifying influence and bringing the church closer and, and unifying relationships, or are you one that perhaps has a way of promoting dissension? So let's look at these. First, number one, one of the reasons that healthy church members diligently preserve the unity of the church is because Jesus prayed that we would be unified. He prayed that we would be unified. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, and we're going to look for a few moments at Christ's high priestly prayer. You'll remember that in John 17, Christ is about to be arrested the plan hatched by Judas is about to come to fruition. Christ has spent an evening with his disciples. They have shared their last supper together. They have spent some time singing. And Christ now goes and prays. This is known as the high priestly prayer. And in verses 1 to 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. And starting in verse 20, Christ begins to pray for those who would come after the disciples, future believers, future Christians, which includes us. And so he's praying for us 
in the sense, way back there in the garden as he is praying. And I want you to notice that the content of his prayer is one of unity. I want to read verses 20 to 23, John 17. He says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and you love me even as you love. You love them even as you love me. I want you to notice three times in those verses, Christ prays that we would be one. Verse 20, he says, that they may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. What I find so interesting about this is this is the last moment of Christ's public ministry. And the thing that he's doing is praying, and the last words from his mouth in his high priestly prayer are directed to the church, future, us, and the content of that prayer in these last final moments is unity. Look down at verse, uh, chapter 18. Look at the, the very next thing that happens after this is Judas arrives with his Roman cohort, and they take him off, and they arrest him, and he's crucified just a few hours later. This is the very last thing that is on Christ's heart. Unity, oneness. Now, what, what is this unity that Christ is praying for? I want to suggest to you that there's both a positional unity that He's praying for and a practical unity that He's praying for. Let me explain both of those to you. He is praying, first of all, for a positional unity. And by that, I mean that He's praying that we would positionally or objectively be one. And that prayer was answered on Pentecost as God gave the Holy Spirit, as He was given, and the believers in that day were filled with the Spirit, the, the Spirit came to indwell them, and because of that, they are unified. That is positional oneness, a oneness that results from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. And so, in a sense, every Christian is unified objectively because of the indwelling nature and ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why you can go anywhere in the world and talk to another believer and have instant fellowship. Matt, George, and I were in Malawi just a few months ago, and, and from the moment we arrived, there was an instant connection with those believers, those men there, because we're believers. We have this oneness. We have this unity that results because of our common faith and our common bond in Christ. So there's a positional unity that Christ is praying for, but there's also a practical unity, a unity which manifests itself in the actual and outworking of the relationships within the church. This is practical unity, a unity that flows into the relationships within the body so that we're unified not just in position, but we're unified in practice. And so what that looks like is a church where there's no factions, 
where there's relationships dominated by love, where there's forgiveness and repentance which are granted over and over and over again within the church so that there's no bickering and fighting and no broken relationships. This is the the practical outworking of the positional oneness that Christ prayed for. And he's praying for both here. You say, well, how unified should we be? Jesus answers that in verse 21. Look what he says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. How unified should we be? We should be as unified as the Trinity is unified. How's that for a standard? That's the the bar. That's the standard by which believers need to be unified with one another in the same sense that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Now, you're getting at here some of the mysteries of the Trinity, and we're beginning to plumb some of the depths of the Trinity that, frankly, just blows our mind. But you have to understand that within the Trinity, there is a perfection of essence such that the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and so they are distinct personalities with the same essence, right? Christ is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but Christ is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit distinct personalities with the same oneness, and it is that oneness, that unity within the Godhead, within the Trinity, that is to define the oneness and unity that that should dominate the relationships within the bride of Christ. Listen, think about this. Do you realize the Trinity has never had a conflict? Think about that. There has never been one thing in the history of the Trinity's existence where they've been at odds with one another. Now, Christ prayed, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But he said also, not my will, but your will be done. There has never been a disagreement. There's never been a conflict. There's never been a division between the personalities of the Trinity because they're one essence. And because of that, that becomes the standard, that becomes the bar by which you and I as the church need to deal with one another. We need to engage each other with that same level of oneness and unity. In fact, look at verse 21 again, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He takes it even further. Not only is the Father in Christ and Christ in the Father, but Jesus is praying that they also, meaning us, would be in them, the Trinity. So, the, so we as believers are, in a sense, caught up into this Trinitarian relationship where we're somehow involved in what's taking place within the Godhead. We're not God. We're not in any way a part of the Godhead, but somehow Jesus is praying that we would be brought into the unity of the Trinity, and that would be reflected in the oneness that dominates our relationships. He repeats the thought in verse 22. Look what he says. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And again in verse 23, I in them and you in me. 
Jesus says, Lord, Father, I'm praying that they would be one in the same sense that you are in me and I'm in them. Look at verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity. It's tremendous. The Trinity and the relationships within it inform the relationships that we have with, with one another. And that then becomes the, the basis for how we interact with one another. And so you need to understand that Jesus here is not praying for just some surface hold hands, sing kumbaya kind of unity. This is a deep, internal, spiritual unity that only comes to those who are one in Christ. It's tremendous. Why should we be unified like this? I mean, is this really that important? Is this really that significant? You better believe it is. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Whoa. The reason Christ is praying that we, the church, would be unified is so that the watching world would believe that Jesus truly is the one whom God has sent. So what he's getting at here is the reason for our unity is evangelistic. It's amazing. We're to be united. We're to, we're to defer to one another. We're to serve one another. We're to ha- have love characterize our relationships with one, one another. We're to for, forgive and reconcile and be restored to one another. We're to let love cover a multitude of sins, and we're to let uh, offenses go by. We're to overlook those offenses. And the reason we're to do all of that is so the watching world sees how we relate to one another, and they can see that Jesus really is the one sent by God. The gospel's at stake. Evangelism is at stake. In fact, look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that, here's another so that, so that the world may know that you sent me. That's what he said in verse 21. The reason for this is so that the world could believe that Christ really is who he says he is. The one sent by God to save sinners and, look at the end of verse 23, and love them even as you have loved me. The reason we're to be unified is so that we show the world that Jesus is who he says he is. And so that we can demonstrate to the world that we've been loved by God so that we can then be a vehicle for the love of God to penetrate the world who desperately needs the gospel. So it's all about evangelism. Our unity shows that we've been loved by God with the very same love that He reserves for the Son, and that love is the same love that the Father has for the Son, and the same love that is given to anyone in the world who will receive Christ as Lord and Savior. So, when the world looks at us, when the world sees how we interact with each other, when the world sees how we relate to one another, they should see a people who are not perfect. Not a people who just normally or naturally suddenly get along with each other, who all have all these problems or race. Now, that's not what they see. They see people who hurt each other. They see people who, who still offend each other. They see people who still need to ask forgiveness for each other, but they see people working it out. Because the means for reconciliation is the gospel, and God has given us the gospel. 
And so this is all meant to be evangelistic. That, that's what we want the watching world to see. We want them to see not our perfections, but our progress and our relationships with one another. Think about the opposite. Think about a church filled with factions. Think about a church filled with bickering people, with people who are easily offended, for people who are divisive, for people who are not getting along with each other. Think, think about what that communicates to the world. It communicates that the gospel you believe hasn't done anything in your life or your church. You want me to believe your message that Jesus saves and that Jesus has loved you and Jesus has redeemed you? You want me to believe that when you act that way and you treat each other that way? That's not a message of, of hope and love and, and, and redemption. No, that's a turnoff for Christ. So the opposite is what we're striving for because our unity demonstrates an affection for Christ and a love by Christ, which then permeates our church and our relationships, which then makes us attractive to the world. And so that's what healthy church members do. They purposely, they intentionally, they diligently pursue the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. I'll tell you what that means. It means you can't just sweep it under the rug, right? You can't just sweep it under the rug. That person who may be here in the room this, this morning and you know that you, you, you really don't want to see them because perhaps you've offended them or they've offended you. And so there's this avoidance that goes on and your hope just by, by time it will go away and you sweep it under the rug. No, 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 no. That's not allowed in the church. It's not allowed because what that does is over time it festers and it leads to greater division and greater walls which prevent us from being the bride of Christ, and he's called us to be. So we work those things out. We pursue reconciliation. We pursue harmony. We pursue peace with one another. We pursue repentance and forgiveness because there's a whole lot more at stake than just our pride. The unity of the church and the glory of the gospel is at stake. Well, that's the first reason. The reason we need to be diligently preserving the unity of the church is because Jesus prayed that we would be unified. There's a second one. Number two, there's another reason why it's essential for us to be a unified church. Number two, because we can't truly worship God if we're not unified. We can't do what we're doing this morning, gathering for public worship and giving our gifts and singing songs and hearing the word preached and fellowshipping with one another and hearing the word taught. We, we can't do any of this if there is division within our church. And so the premise that we're going to see here in this point is that reconciliation must precede worship. Reconciliation must precede worship. I want to show you this in Matthew chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. I'll show you another example here of the importance of unity. Matthew chapter 5, you remember, is the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is confronting the Pharisees' hypocrisy. He's showing them that their supposed righteousness is only external. It's not internal. It's not the real deal. It's simply a, a fake on the outside. They're just whitewashed tombs. They're, they're lacking a true inner righteousness that has truly redeemed them and saved them. And so what Jesus is doing, he's, he's showing them that their worship is all a heartless, external, cold ceremony. 
And he does that in chapter 5 by a number of statements that begin with, you have heard it said, and then, but I say to you. So this is what Jesus is doing six times, at least six times in Matthew chapter 5, that phrase occurs. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And what Christ is doing is he's confronting them on the fact that they believe their external righteousness is enough to get them to heaven. And he says, no, but I say to you, you're missing the heart and it's your heart that matters. Look down in verses 33 and 34. Here's an example. Again, you've heard it said that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all. Verse 38, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist him who's evil. Verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See what he's doing? confronting their, their cold hypocrisy and showing them the issues of the heart. Well, that's what he does in verses 21 to 24. 21, verse 21, he says, You've heard it said that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. The Pharisees had reduced their righteousness to simply not murdering. Well, that's great, Jesus says. You don't murder people. That's wonderful but you still hate people, you're still angry at people, and you're missing the, the mark, Pharisees, that it's not enough just to not, not murder people. You have to stop being angry. You have to control your anger, and that's only something that can take place in an internal heart condition that's rightly related to God. So he's attacking their hypocrisy, and it's in the context of that that verse 23 and 24 occur. Look what he says in verse 23, therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that God is concerned not just about your lack of murder, but your heart and your anger. Therefore, in light of that fact, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. See what he says? He's describing a scenario here that would have been very familiar to the Jews. And the Jews, often during, during, oftentimes during the year, and particularly on the Day of Atonement, they would bring their sacrifices to the temple, and they would lay their hands on the sacrifice, the animal, and they would offer that animal to the priest who would then sacrifice the animal on their behalf, and their sins would be removed. And Jesus says, if you're ever in that state, if you're on your way to the temple to offer your sacrifice, and you remember, oh, wait. I did something to that person. That person's upset with me. Even if you get to the point where the sacrifice is ready to be offered and the priest is ready to plunge the knife into the, the sacrifice, he says, wait, no, stop. You've you got to stop offering your, your sacrifice and you've got to go and make it right. Verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar. Walk away and do what? Go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Hmm. He says, don't offer your sacrifice knowing that you're out of fellowship with someone because that's hypocrisy. 
Don't think you're, you're doing a good thing for God. Don't think you're doing worship. Don't think God is pleased with you because you're, you're doing some sort of external act of sacrifice when you know that there's someone out there that's offended because of what you did to them. So you've got to stop your act of worship and go and resolve this issue with this brother or sister in Christ. This is what the Israelites were doing. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees here, but did you know that God rebuked his people back in Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, God says to them, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we're delivered. See, Israel is doing the same thing. They were at odds with each other. They were stealing. They were murdering. They were committing adultery. They were swearing falsely. And then they show up in the temple. Oh, we're here to worship God. Very, very, very important principle that before we enter into the worship of the living and holy God, we need to make sure that we're right with fellow believers. Before we engage in vertical worship, we must pursue horizontal harmony. That's a huge spiritual principle, and that's why Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So reconciliation with fellow believers, with other people, becomes a priority over acts of worship. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And that's what healthy church members do. They take an inventory of their relationships kind of evaluate and think through, okay, what, is there someone out there that I've offended? Is there someone out there that I'm not in a right relationship with? Is there someone out there that I need to go talk to and, and pursue a, a reconciliation with? That's why we frequently, during communion, will say, are you out of fellowship with someone? Because if you are, you should abstain from communion and you should go make that right with that person. Could I even say this? It may be better for you to skip church. Did I say that? Yeah, I said that. Skip church. Don't come. Don't come on a Sunday morning if you know that there's an issue between you and another brother or sister. Because if you come here and you, you sing songs and you worship and you give your offering and you, you know, have this great worship experience, God looks at that and says, that's worthless. Because you're out of fellowship with that brother or sister in Christ. This puts a premium on us making sure that we're rightly related to fellow believers. I told you just a couple weeks ago, I, I had to set up a meeting with someone just a t- couple weeks ago, before Sunday. And we had to sit down and we had to work through something and we had to talk through an issue and we, we had to repent and we had to seek forgiveness. And I had to do that and I had to facilitate that and I had to be the one to initiate that because I offended somebody. I couldn't stand up here the next Sunday just a few days later and act all worshipful. There's been times on Saturday nights I've had to talk to my wife. I've had to talk to my kids. God puts a premium on reconciled relationships over hypocritical worship. So that's why we need to pursue this. It's what healthy church members do. They, they, they understand that their worship is ineffective if there are broken relationships in their life. Number three. There's a third reason 
why we must diligently pursue the harmony and the unity of the church. It's because we're commanded to actively protect the unity of the church. We don't have time today to give a comprehensive description or explanation of all the texts that relate to this, but there are text after text after text after text in the New Testament that talk about the priority and the importance of diligently and actively preserving the unity of the church. Listen, this takes work. This takes effort. I think I've shared with you before, someone has said, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory, but to live below with saints we know, that's another story. Right? It's hard. And I think marriage may be kind of an illustration of this. If you're married, you understand this. You go into marriage, and you're thinking, man, this is going to be so wonderful. And we're going to get along so well, and we're never going to fight. And there's going to be bells and whistles going off, you know, in this relationship, and fireworks. And, and man, this is going to be the best marriage ever. And then the honeymoon hits. And about four days in, some major fight happens, and you realize, oh, this takes some work. This takes some effort. This takes working through issues together. And I think in the church, the same thing's true. We have to be diligent in our pursuit of unity with one another. We can't just coast in this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul says to the Corinthians, let there be no divisions, let there be no schismata, no schisms, no divisions, no broken relationships between you in your church. And they were filled with them. This one's following this person, this one's following that person, this group's following Jesus, and that one's following Paul. All kinds of divisions within their church. And, and Paul writes to them and says, let there be none of that, no schisms among you, but you need to be of the same mind and the same judgment. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over and over. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to show you just very quickly what Paul says on this issue in Ephesians 4. Verses 1 to 3. Paul says, starting in verse 1, Ephesians 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Now watch this, verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if you had been through a whole study, which we've done, of Ephesians, you would know that back in chapter 2, he's talking about the unity of the Spirit, that in Christ there is this unity, that Christ has brought down the dividing wall. In Christ we've been brought near. He is our peace. He's brought down the dividing wall. It has separated us, and he's reconciled us in one body to God. This is Ephesians 2. 
having put to death the enmity that exists between us, verse 18 of chapter 2 says, for through him we've had our access in one spirit to the Father. So in Christ, we've been given this unity through the spirit, which has been removing all of the dissension and division that existed between us and fellow, belie- or fellow people prior to our conversion. And now in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, be diligent to preserve that. You have it. You have that unity of the Spirit. Now maintain it. Be diligent. And by that word diligent, he's talking about some spiritual effort and some spiritual sweat and some spiritual diligence where you actually engage in a serious, earnest, urgent attempt to maintain the unity of the bride of Christ. Guard it. Keep it. Protect it. Maintain it. Why? Verse 4, because there's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, we're part of the same entity. There's one body, there's one church, and there's one spirit who lives in all of us, and there's one calling which comes through grace by faith, and there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. How can we be divided if we're all in the same entity known as the church and all that goes with it? So be diligent. Are you diligent? Have you done everything? Have you done everything you can to pursue reconciliation with that person? Go over to Philippians chapter 1. Just a couple of verse, a couple of chapters, one book to the right. Philippians 1, 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I love that. One spirit, one mind, striving together. The word striving together, soon athleo. Athletics, athletics, competition, athletes. Soon athleo, striving together. The idea here is a football team or a soccer team or a basketball team that's kind of got all the same goal. They're all working towards the same thing. And so on a football team, you don't have the quarterback getting in a fight with the linebacker on the same team. You don't have the running back and the, the wide receiver fighting on the same team. At least you shouldn't. Why? Because they've got the goal, the, the same goal. And that's what it's like in the church. We've got the same goal. We've got the same passion. What is it? The end of verse 21 or 27 says, for the faith of the gospel. That's our goal. And then our unity affects our ability to do that. Philippians chapter 2, just a couple of verses later. Verse 1, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see it? Over and over and over again, one mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And what's the attitude that needs to... to, uh, Communicate that? Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. So humility is the environment in which unity grows. 
If you want to see reconciled relationships with fellow believers, it takes place in the environment, in the greenhouse of humility. How humble? The same humility that Christ had. Verse 6, who existed in the form of God but did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How humble should you be? As humble as Christ. Go over to chapter 4, Philippians 4. There were apparently two ladies in the church in Philippi who needed some help. Verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, my true comrade, I ask that you also help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement. Help them. Help them get along. He tells these ladies to live in harmony, be reconciled. They've served the gospel purposes. They've they've been involved in the struggle for the cause of the gospel. Now help them get along. One last text, Colossians chapter 3. Go just a couple pages to the, to the right. Colossians 3, verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Verse 14, and, put, and beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. I tell you, that's what happens in the healthy church. People are compassionate towards one another, kind, humble, gentle, patient. They bear with one another. They forgive each other. And the glue that holds it all together is love. We're not better than the world. The only difference is we've been changed by Christ and we now have the resources by which we can be reconciled to one another. So, are you a healthy church member? Is there anyone you need to forgive today? Is there anyone you need to ask forgiveness of today? Is there anyone you need to talk to? Is there anyone you need to be reconciled to or restore a relationship with? Let me just give you some closing thoughts. Some ways to maybe think about putting this into practice practically. First, be the first one to pursue this. Yeah, it may be the other person's fault, but you be the first one. You go, you talk to them, you initiate, you win the, the race to repentance. You be the first one to seek peace and seek reconciliation. And then after that, another thing you could do is you need to consider the cost of disunity, There's a great cost. Someone as well said, if you descend into disunity, you hand Satan a victory. So maintain peace and deny him the triumph. We need to count the cost. If we're disunified, if we're characterized by dissension, it will hand Satan the victory. So we need to consider the cost associated with disunity. There's another thing you can do. We need to also remember that spiritual safety comes through spiritual unity. If you want spiritual protection in your life, if you want spiritual blessing in your life, it comes when you're in unified relationships with fellow believers. 
There's safety there. There's protection there. But when you isolate yourself and you're in a broken relationship with someone, watch out. You're at risk for great spiritual danger. And then last, spend some time considering the evidences of grace in the other person rather than the things that offended you about them. If they're truly a believer, there are going to be evidences of God's working in their life. Focus on those. Concentrate on those. Emphasize those rather than emphasizing the weaknesses and the things that have caused the breakdown in the relationship. This is God's admonitions to us. We need to hear this not because there are major problems at our church. We just need to hear this because we need to be those who constantly and diligently and persistently pursue the unity of Christ and the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel and the health of this body. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us these instructions, Lord. We've needed to hear them. We've needed to be reminded just about the priority and the premium that you put upon healthy relationships within the church. Lord, we want to be those who are characterized by this kind of unity. We want to be those who are characterized by this kind of reconciliation when we do offend each other. And so, Lord, let us practice this. Let us pursue this. Let us be those who diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, if there are any this morning who are out of fellowship, if there's any broken relationships, Lord, we pray that you'll restore them and bring about a harmony and peace that shows the watching world that we're different and that Christ is the means and the source of our unity and it's Him we're seeking to please. So, Lord, we thank You for these things and we commit them to You in Your name. Amen.